Hello and welcome to the UCL News Podcast. I'm George. And I'm Claire. On this week's podcast, we've got a UCL PhD student to talk about her incredible experiences of the Arab Spring Revolution in Egypt. And we also went to see Jack Ashby talk about one of the weird and wonderful exhibits in the Grime Museum. But first, the news. Researchers from UCL's maths department have analysed more than 45 billion Google search queries and found that internet users from countries with a higher GDP are more likely to search for information about the future than information about the past. The team, led by Stephen Bishop from UCL Maths, thinks that these findings may reflect international differences in attention to the future and the past, where a focus on the future supports economic success. It's a really, really interesting paper, actually, and fascinating to think that a country's respective wealth can have such a large impact on their outlook. And this stuff also really nicely dovetails with another one of um, Stephen Bishop's projects called Future ICT, which is a large-scale European initiative to examine how we use data to understand the complex behaviour of society. Um, so there's definitely a kind of a really big push at the minute to uh, harness kind of supercomputing power to try and find trends in our behaviour, which I think is interesting and also terrifying. a little bit terrifying. Yeah. Um, Google. No, no, taking no. over, yeah, taking over, <laughs> they know everything. Um, but now for something completely different. In London, it's virtually impossible not to come across, you know, the capital's ubiquitous flying vermin. So while they congest every square park and public space, how do they navigate around? With us on the pod today, we've got Ruth Howes from UCL's media relations team to tell us more about a recent study um, involving UCL scientists, which has debunked a widely held theory about how pigeons get around. Hello, Ruth. Hi. Hi. So, Ruth, what's so special about pigeons then? So, for years, people have thought that pigeons' famous navigational skills are down to iron-rich nerve cells in their beaks, which act like a kind of compass. But this new research, which involves some pretty amazing state-of-the-art 3D imaging by Mark Lithgow and Johannes Riegler from UCL, has disproved that theory um, in a new study published in Nature. The study shows that iron-rich cells in the pigeon beak are in fact specialised white blood cells called macrophages. This finding, which shatters the established dogma, puts the field back on course as the search for magnetic cells, truly magnetic cells, continues. As a result, the search for the actual mechanism that allows migratory birds and many other animals to respond to the Earth's magnetic field and navigate around their environment remains an intriguing puzzle to be solved. Mm. It's such a cool uh, paper, it really is. And if all that intrigue and mystery has piqued your interest, you can also find out more on the UCL media page. And we've got some lovely images uh, from that said paper. Um, and they're really something special, so definitely mm, check them out. Yeah, they're really quite quite special. Okay, so um, finally, with the Olympics looming, um, UCL have got some stunning events lined up over the next few months to whet your appetite, ranging from live screenings of Olympic events in the quad to lunch hour lectures to keep you updated and informed about the Olympics past, present and the contentious issues surrounding London's own Olympic legacy. There really are some great events lined up, from talks from the UCL Institute of Sport, Exercise and Health to a very special bright club all about failure preparing us for when everything goes wrong (laughs) Um, so they all really do look great so be sure to pick up a brain food um, brochure or check out all the events online um, to find out more yeah so keeping with the London theme UCL has also just launched a special London website where you can find more information about UCL's research in London along with its links to local businesses communities health and the aforementioned Olympics 
So visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash London for more. Yeah, it's a great site. Um, so that's all the news for this show. Uh, but stay tuned to hear about my trip down to the Grant Museum of Zoology, where I went to speak to Jack Ashby to find out more about one of their rarer exhibits. But first, on the 25th of January 2011, protesters flocked to Tahir Square to protest against the reign of Hosni Mubarak. The number of protesters grew to over 100,000 over the next few days, and as a result, Tahir Square, which literally means Liberation Square, became a potent symbol of the Arab Spring and the revolution sweeping across the Gulf. UCL PhD student Noha Abueldahab was there and spoke to us about her experiences. When it first um, happened on the 25th of January, I was in Qatar um, working and uh, I was dying to go. I mean, I, you know, when I was watching the events unfold, I, I just, it, I, I really didn't like not being there. Um, so I managed to, you know, convince my boss that, you know, <laughs> I, need, I need to go. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I was scared. I was scared because I wasn't sure what to expect. And um, because of sort of my previous little encounter with Egyptian state security, um, I left all of my, my documents, my Egyptian ID documents at home. And I went with my husband. And my husband is a Canadian journalist. And so that day on the 3rd of February um, was one of the worst days for foreign journalists in Tahrir Square because there's a huge crackdown on them. They were getting taken away. They were getting beaten up in the middle of the desert and just sort of left there. Um, they were being interrogated. And so when we first, um, when we first arrived, uh, you know, we were checking, we were actually checking Twitter and, and Facebook to see what was going on. And we read all these reports about, you know, some of our friends, like our journalist friends who were getting kidnapped. And so that was, you know, it was a lot scarier, I think, for my husband. <laughs> And that was when I knew, wow, I'm actually safer as an Egyptian for the first time <laughs> in Egypt. So we, we wanted to stay at a hotel that overlooked the square so that, you know, we can get sort of a good picture of what was going on. So um, obviously we couldn't drive through. So we had to, we walked for about two hours with um, this driver that we know. And we ran into many um, like neighborhood watch points that they had set up. And uh, it was extremely tense. And, you know, they, some of them, you just couldn't tell if they were pro-Mubarak or anti-Mubarak. And, you know, there was this whole problem with thugs. Mm. So some of them actually were holding, were carrying swords and sticks and knives. And, you know, they were just squinting their eyes at us. And I was terrified for Andrew, my husband, because I told him, just don't say a word because I don't want them to know that you're not Arab, you know, you're not Egyptian. Um, so we decided to stay in the hotel that night and we got up very early the next morning to, to leave. And um, we, we took a taxi, I'll never forget this taxi ride. So one thing I've noticed throughout the last year, I mean, before like 
right before the fall, the ouster of Mubarak, and then, it, you know, all throughout the whole the whole year, is that the taxi drivers, most of them, are completely against this revolution. They're so fed up. They um, they're so annoyed with these kids. They call them these smelly kids in Tahrir who you know, have disrupted our lives and, you know, we want to make a living and we're so sick and tired of this. And, um, so this, ta this taxi driver that morning, he was uh, ranting and ranting and ranting about how upset he was with everything that was happening. And, you know, remember, this is like, this is before Mubarak fell. So the tensions were extremely high. And I had told Andrew, don't, don't say a word in the taxi, you know, just I'll do all the talking. So this guy is like talking, talking, talking. And then he was like, right, man, like, what do you think? And so then I responded and I was like, yeah, mm -hmm, hopefully things will get better. He's like, but I want to know what you think. What do you think? And then he wasn't responding. And so the taxi driver was like, what's the matter? Does he not want to talk to me or what? And he was, he, he got like really angry. And I said, um, no, it's just that he's deaf. I'm sorry. And he was like, oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> God be with him or something like that. So thankfully he got out of that unscathed. Um, anyway, so then we went to Tahrir Square that day. And that was sort of a very defining moment for me. Just personally, it was, it was, um, it was sort of a moment of pride that I had never experienced before in Egypt. So in Tahrir, it was just, it was completely different. It was, it was the Egypt that everybody had dreamed of. And um, so that was nice. But, you know, as soon as you exit the square and it, it's, it's, it becomes a, a, you know, a more complex story. I'm here in the Grant Museum of Zoology with Jack Ashby, who's a Learning and Access Manager. Hi, Jack. Um, we've got this um, interesting skull in front of you. Could you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, this is the skull of a, a thylacine, um, which is also called a, a Tasmanian tiger. So they were a, a very large marsupial carnivore. Um, it's now extinct, went extinct in um, 1936, probably. Um, certainly in the wild, the last one was seen in 1933, officially. And uh, it's one of, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a dog-sized, dog-shaped marsupial that's not at all related to dogs, um, but it's related to kangaroos and wallabies, and more closely Tasmanian devils and quolls. Um, and did the same thing in Australia and Tasmania as wolves do in the rest of the world. So these dog-shaped kind of marsupials would, would hunt in packs and... Small, in small packs, I think, uh, kind of they were ambush predators. Yeah. Terrorizing people. <laughs> well, terrorizing wallabies and bomb, more likely possums, um, <laughs> and they were well, they they kind of um, would deliberately driven to extinction. It's one of the really only examples of a deliberate extinction because um, Tasmanian sheep farming community accused them as of, as eating sheep, which um, has since been proved to be extremely unlikely. And it was that they were actually being killed by feral dogs and people stealing sheep. That's um, really tragic. It is. So how, how did this particular skull um, come into your possession here at the ground? Um, we have several thylacine specimens. I don't know where exactly where this one came from, but um, 
I think it's a fairly early acquisition. It would have come in before the, the thylacine went extinct, so in the light, well, certainly in the 19th century. Um, but it's one of a number of skulls we have here, and um, we have a skeleton that, that comes from Robert Grant's original collection, from probably from the 1830s. And our kind of most exciting thylacine specimen is a, a fluid-preserved adult, so it's in a jar in uh, methylated spirits. And it's, um, it's exciting not only because it's a thylacine and extinct, but it's one of the only um, adult wet preparations in the world. And it's also exciting because it's dissected by Thomas Henry Huxley, who um, was one of the most famous 19th century uh, naturalists, kind of responsible for having Darwin's um, work on natural selection accepted by the Victorian scientific community. And um, we have it because it came, well, he worked at Imperial College and we have all of Imperial's zoology collection here after they closed in the they closed their zoology collection in the 1980s and we absorbed all of that. <laughs>